Okay. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Once again, I want to say happy birth, I'm sorry, happy Mother's Day <laughs> to all the mothers. Um, and to those covenant members who are watching um, online right now, if you are a mama and you're watching and you're one of our covenant members, our church has a gift for you. Um, if you're a mom who's watching that isn't a covenant member and you're thinking, well, I want a gift, I invite you to join our church. Um, also, I know that my mom is watching right now and thinking to herself, why has my son not called me yet? Because I haven't called my mom today yet. Mom, I promise I'm going to call you after church. It's been a crazy day. Okay? Have you not? Okay, start it. All right, so I'm going to start over. All right, we're starting over, everyone. <laughs> Pretend I haven't said anything yet. If you are a covenant member who is watching and you are a mom, we have a gift for you. If you are a mom who is watching who's not a covenant member and thinking, well, I want a gift too, I invite you to join our church. Clever, right? Um, also, I know that my mom now is watching <laughs> and thinking to herself, why has my son not called me yet? Mom, I promise I'm going to call you, okay? It's been a crazy day. I will call you after church, all right? So, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today, and I need to tell you that it is only by coincidence, I promise you, only by coincidence, that on Mother's Day we are talking about Satan, okay? Uh, though, I will say, it does kind of fit that this is a story about a little devil being put in his place by his maker, who, even though he is very hungry and tired, still manages to stay under control and do everything that needs to be done before finally, at the end of the story, getting a hot meal. So, it kind of fits. Um, we've been going through this series called Replant. And we're talking in this series about how to become people who bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thus far, we've talked about things like being a seed who is willing to die and being committed to a long process of growth. We're going to follow up that message from last week about being committed to a long process of growth by talking tonight about not taking spiritual shortcuts. Because no one wants to be like Rosie Ruiz. Who is Rosie Ruiz? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. Rosie Ruiz seemed to everyone watching the Boston Marathon on April 12, 1980, to be one of the most elite athletes in the world. Because this 26-year-old New Yorker had just finished one of the most famous marathons on planet Earth in near record time. Two hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. She was, that year, the first woman to cross the finish line. And her time was the third fastest time ever recorded by a woman in a marathon. But even more amazing than that was that she had barely broken a sweat. She looked perfect. And she was also smiling, which should have been a red flag to everyone because runners never smile. Okay, do we have any runners in the room, people who enjoy running? Okay, um, you're liars. I don't believe you at all. No one enjoys running, okay? Literally no one enjoys running. It's torture, okay? It is specifically designed to torture you. No one smiles when they're running. If you ever see someone who is running and smiling it is because they are running from a scene of a crime that they just got away with, okay? That's the only reason to smile while you're running. 
And for those of you that raised your hand and said that you enjoy it, I don't believe you, okay? You've somehow been blackmailed into doing it, uh, even against your will. Now, I should say there is one place where it is common and okay for runners to smile, and that is at the finish line, because the torture is now over, and they can stop running. So, Rosie Ruiz was smiling. But oddly, she also seemed to be very full of energy. What she didn't seem to be full of was detailed information about running. This was only Rosie's second marathon ever. Her first was the New York City Marathon that she had run the previous year, which she had finished in 2 hours, 56 minutes, and 33 seconds. So there at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, she's being interviewed by a reporter named Catherine Switzer. And it just so happened that Switzer was only the second woman to ever run in the Boston Marathon. And Switzer, as she interviewed Ruiz, was skeptical. So she asked Ruiz, so in a year, you improved from two hours and 56 minutes to two hours and 33 minutes? How did you do that? And Ruiz replied, I trained myself. Switzer asked, okay, what, what are your intervals? To which Ruiz asked a question of her own. What's an interval? Now, I should be honest here and say, I don't know what an interval is either. All right, I had to Google it. Uh, it turns out intervals are short, intense efforts followed by equal or slightly longer recover time. Okay? I don't really know what that means. The point is, Rosie Ruiz didn't know what that meant either. And long-distance runners all know what intervals are. Race officials had already crowned her still perfectly styled hair with the victor's wreath. But before long, information started to bubble to the surface that painted a much different picture than a self-trained elite newbie. It took eight days for the investigation to reveal what actually happened, as witnesses slowly came forward with more and more information. Officials quickly learned that not a single witness could verify seeing Ruiz on the course. Even worse, she didn't appear in any of the thousands of pictures that were taken by race photographers at checkpoints. Every single one of the checkpoints had photographers posted, and Ruiz was captured in none of their photographs. And then a witness came forward saying that she had seen Ruiz jump out of the crowd and join the runners only a mile from the finish line. So as more witnesses came forward, the real story came to light. Rosie Ruiz was a registered entrant in the race, and she did begin the race. But shortly after the beginning of the race, she left the course and boarded the subway. As she sat on the subway heading toward the finish line, a woman sat down next to her noticing that she's dressed as a Boston Marathon runner. She's got her bib on with her number. And uh, she felt bad for her, and uh, Rosie told her that she had twisted her ankle and that she couldn't run anymore, and she still wanted to see the finish. So, feeling bad for her, this woman helped Ruiz off of the subway, helped her limp over to the final checkpoint. She then saw Ruiz go over to a table where there were cups of water and juice uh, for, in, for the runners. And she heard Ruiz tell race officials that she was an injured runner. So as people kind of swarmed around her, this woman uh, said that she lost sight of her and didn't see her again until she was watching the news the next day. Where all this took place, again, was about a mile from the finish line. So, while it seemed like no one was watching, Ruiz jumped onto the course and ran the one mile to the finish line. 
After eight days, she was stripped of her victory. But the investigation that, uh, that revealed this ended up revealing even more things that Ruiz had kept hidden. You see, Ruiz had qualified for the Boston Marathon based on her finish in the New York City Marathon the year prior, 1979. At the time that that happened, Ruiz was an administrative assistant uh, at a business in Manhattan, and her boss was a runner. And after the, uh, her finish in the New York City Marathon, after she did so well, her boss got so excited that he decided that he wanted to pay her way to compete in the Boston Marathon the following year. So as the Boston officials began unraveling her win, they also discovered the truth about her New York City Marathon finish. That Ruiz there had also done the same thing. In the New York City Marathon, she also rode the subway. Since she wasn't the winner of the New York City Marathon, she, she finished in the top 50, no one had taken time to notice that she didn't appear in any of the checkpoint photos there either. That there were no witnesses there that saw her running. There was no video footage that could be found of her running the race. And then they found witnesses in New York who verified that they saw her on the subway as well. So with a flood of evidence, both finishes were stripped from her. Her Boston win was given to the actual winner, um, Jacqueline Garreau. But interestingly, Ruiz vehemently denied cheating. She adamantly claimed over and over and over that she won fair and square. And there were only a small handful of people who believed her. Uh, But... (laughs) Her character was further called into question in 1982, two years later, when she was charged with writing fraudulent checks in order to steal $60,000 from the realty company where she worked in Manhattan. And then in 1983, things got even worse when she was arrested for selling two kilos of cocaine to an undercover FBI agent. So... She's not really doing a great job of helping people believe that she's a truth teller. But it wasn't until 1996 that her only advocate, another runner named Steve Merrick, came forward to say that Ruiz had admitted to him that she cheated. That she admitted to him that she had jumped out of the crowd and started running. And that it wasn't her intention to win. She miscalculated. She wasn't intending to be the first person to cross the finish line, uh, the first woman to cross the finish line. She just jumped in with a group of guys that she saw and, and kept running. But until the day of her death two years ago, she maintained publicly that she had won and run fair and square. She kept her medal. She kept her victor's wreath, forcing officials to make a new medal and a new wreath for the actual winner. And then she spent the rest of her life figuratively running. Running away from the spotlight. Running away from reporters. And ultimately, running away from the truth. Today, her legacy continues to live on in the running world. If runners in any race are caught cutting the course, they are deemed the Rosie Ruiz of the race. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we are told, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Most of us understand that the race being described in this verse, the the race of our spiritual journey, if you will, is not a sprint. But rather, it is a marathon that lasts our entire lives. But what many of us are guilty of, like Rosie Ruiz, is trying to take shortcuts in the spiritual journey. We are guilty of cutting corners. We're we're guilty of trying to make things go a lot quicker than they naturally should. And we have an enemy who is whispering to us at every turn, take the subway, 
it's shorter. So thus, we have to do what Hebrews 12, 2 tells us to do. And that is, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, not today, Satan, not today. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. So, this passage is a doozy, right? This is a passage that can be very confusing. A passage that brings up a lot of questions. Like, how could Satan tempt God? Could Jesus have sinned? How is any of this stuff remotely tempting to Jesus, since he is over everything, and everything belongs to him? So let's begin by setting this in context. This passage takes place just before the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So at this time, he's like 30 years old. He's been living in relative obscurity his entire life. He's about to start his ministry. And like we talked about last week, Jesus had committed himself up to that point for his entire life to a long, slow growth, a long process of a spiritual journey that was leading him to this point. He spent the last 30 years growing in wisdom and knowledge and stature with God and man. So all of that is being led up to this point. We also see that this takes place right after the baptism of Jesus. In in, uh, chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and God in heaven speaks and says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and, And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and rests on him. So, immediately after he's baptized... Immediately after he's gotten this blessing from the Lord, he is led by the Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit leads him there to be tempted. This word uh, for tempted can be better translated as tested. Okay, so Jesus is led there to be tested by the enemy. Now, uh, let's think about another place where somebody was tested. This is not so that God in heaven looking down can go, hmm, I wonder if he'll pass the test. We know when, when we look at, for example, the story of Job, that God allowed Satan to test Job. But God did so knowing who was going to win the bet. We know the same thing with the story of Abraham. God tested Abraham, not so that he could see whether or not Abraham actually would follow through, but so that Abraham could prove himself to be faithful. 
So in facing this test, in facing this temptation, Jesus was accomplishing what no man had ever accomplished. He was doing what the first Adam didn't do. And that was to face the temptation, to face the test, and to come out on the other side of that sinless. Because Jesus didn't just die the death that we should have died. Jesus also lived the life that we should have lived. Jesus accomplished in his humanity everything that humanity was designed to accomplish. But Adam and Eve messed it up. Jesus came to live the life that we were called to live on our behalf, in our stead. He represented full obedience. When when we look at ourselves, if we were to try to put ourselves in this passage, here's the thing that we got to understand. More often than not, Satan doesn't need to get to temptation number three with us. Okay, there are three temptations here. Satan doesn't need to get to temptation number three. We're usually very quick to fall for number one or number two. Okay, Jesus, scripture tells us, is a perfect high priest who identifies with all of our suffering, having suffered and having been tempted every bit as much as any of us and more. And what this shows us here is that Jesus did what what nobody else had, which was face the fullness of temptation and come out unscathed. None of us have ever done that. So Jesus faced more from the enemy than any of us ever have. In noting that this takes place after the baptism of Jesus, Tim Keller uh, notes that Jesus first experienced the blessing of God and then experienced the testing of the enemy. And that we need to realize that it will often be the same with us. We are not just tested by the enemy when we are doing our own thing. More often than not, when we are walking faithfully with the Lord and in his blessing, that's when testing is going to come. So, as we read this passage, what, what lessons can we take for our spiritual journey? How can we apply this to our slow growth toward being fruit-bearing saints? Taking notes here is point number one. Temptation is often a shortcut to a good desire. Temptation is often a shortcut to a good desire. Sometimes we think about temptation as being enticed towards something bad. It is a bad desire to do a bad thing for a bad reason. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes, absolutely, we have a bad desire and we do a bad thing to get a wrong thing. But it's not always true. Many times, what we experience is a good desire or or a desire for a good thing, for something good. But instead of pursuing it in the right way, we take a shortcut. We pull a Rosie Ruiz and we take the subway going around the course that God has designed to try to get something that is good. For example, you might have a good desire to be successful. Nothing wrong with that. I'd say that probably all of us want to be successful. None of us would go into anything if we didn't want to be successful in that thing. But if you're presented with an opportunity to be successful by for example, stealing the credit for somebody else's work, that would be a very bad way to pursue that good goal of being successful. The temptation in this case is a shortcut, a shortcut to a good desire. It's taking the subway for most of the marathon, skipping past checkpoints like hard work, determination, original ideas, patience, etc., And then we just run the last mile to cross the finish line. So what can we learn from these temptations of Jesus and how he handled temptation? The first thing that we need to realize, the first thing that we need to see is that what Satan was offering Jesus was a series of shortcuts. Shortcuts to good things. 
So let's look together at the first temptation. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan comes to him and says, you've been fasting this whole time. It's been 40 days. It's been 40 nights. Now you're starving and there's no food around here anywhere. Ah, but you are the son of God, aren't you? So how about you take these rocks and you use your power and you turn them into bread? Boom, problem solved. You've got food. Now we we might look at this and go, okay, well, what's wrong with doing that? Is there anything sinful about turning stones into bread? Is there anything wrong with feeding himself? Is there anything inherently sinful about saying, you know what, actually I am the son of God and I can turn these stones into bread. As a matter of fact, I could turn them into anything. I could turn them into steak wrapped in bacon. He wouldn't have done that because he was Jewish. If I was in that position, that's what I would have done. But is there anything wrong with with doing that? Well, the temptation here, as we're going to see a little bit later on, we're going to break this down further as we go. The temptation here was to feed himself rather than relying on the Father to feed him at the promised time. Let's take a look at the second temptation. It says, The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's going on here? Satan takes Jesus into Jerusalem, puts him on the the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, Hey, jump off the temple, jump down. And you're not going to hit the ground because the Bible says, and he quotes scripture to him, the Bible says, that God is going to prevent you from from being hurt. He's going to command his angels. They won't let you strike your foot against a stone. So jump. What's going on here? This temptation is a temptation to take a shortcut to glory. If he did this, if Jesus were to jump off the temple and angels came and rescued him in that moment in front of all of these people, what would happen is that this would be unmistakable to everyone watching. This must be the Messiah. I mean, picture yourself there, okay? If you're there in Jerusalem, you're a bystander, and you see someone jump off the pinnacle of the temple, and everyone's gasping, the crowd is watching as this person is coming down, and then all of a sudden, a legion of angels shows up and catches and sets the guy down on the ground. What would you be thinking? Something different about this dude. This would be the Messiah. And so here's the temptation, the the shortcut that Satan is trying to get Jesus to take. You don't actually have to go through the difficulty of suffering and dying and, and performing miracles to prove to all of these people that you are who you say you are. All you have to do is just this one thing. Just this one amazing sign from the temple and they will worship you right now. Aren't you here, after all, to be the Messiah? So be the Messiah. Jump. It'll be perfect. Right now, you'll get worship. Now look at the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So uh, this is a vision, okay, because we, we know that there's not one mountain from which you can see all the kingdoms of the world, but Satan gives him this picture, and, and, and he says, here's all the kingdoms in the world and uh, all of their glory. If you will bow down to me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Seems nonsensical, 
right, this conversation that's happening. But what is the temptation here? What's the shortcut here? The shortcut here is a shortcut to lordship. Satan is saying, you're going to be lord over all the nations, right? You're going to be worshipped by every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's, that's the mission. You're going to reign over all of these things on earth. Well, again, don't waste your effort in suffering and dying and rising and ascending and coming back a second time at some later date. Just start now. All of these people are going to do exactly what I tell them to do. It's easy to look at this temptation and go, okay, how could the devil offer this to Jesus? How could the devil have the gall to look at the Lord of heaven and go, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. We might look at that and go, how would this be tempting at all to Jesus, right? Nothing truly belongs to the devil. Wouldn't, couldn't Jesus just look at Satan and be like, whatever, dude, I already own all the kingdoms of the world. How can you uh, pretend to offer that to me? Try again. But what Satan was offering, once again, was a shortcut. He's offering a shortcut. He's saying to Jesus, right now, currently, I have influence in all of these nations. I I have pull. I, I have influence here. All of these nations are right now worshiping false gods which you and i know actually is just me see these people over there are worshiping dagon you know who's dagon this guy these people over here are worshiping baal you know who who baal is that's me so all of these nations have their false gods their false religions that really are just different forms of me I have influence and pull over every one of these cultures. So, how about I help you out a little bit? How about I, how about I give you a shortcut? Your desire is for everyone to believe in you. Is that right? You, you, you want people to worship you, correct? Well, how about I go into every single one of these nations and I give them indisputable proof that they should worship you? <laughs> It's easy. I'll just have every single one of their false gods speak to them and tell them the truth. I'll just go over here to the Philistines and and I'll speak through Dagon. And Dagon will say to the Philistines, you know who the real God is? It's not me. It's actually Jesus. And those people will go, oh, thanks for telling us, Dagon. We'll go worship him. These people over here, they're worshiping Baal. I'll just have Baal say, I'm not the real God either. You remember that whole thing on Mount Carmel? (laughs) Elijah was right. What a plot twist. Worship Jesus instead. Everyone will believe in you immediately. You will have the worship of every nation. So here's a shortcut to that. All you gotta do is just bow down to me and I'll make them bow down to you. Now, Real quick aside here. This is just a a nugget. It's important to understand that God's desire isn't simply that everyone believes in him. And we often have this wrong picture that God's desire is for everyone to just believe in him. But here's the thing. He could easily do that. Easily. He could show up in the sky and just prove his reality to everyone. But his desire isn't that every person simply say, oh yeah, I I believe in God. His desire is that we'd have a relationship of love, that we would follow him, that we would give him our hearts, that we would give him our allegiance, that we would desire him. His desire is that we follow him in, in faith. If all God wanted was to just empirically prove himself to everyone, he would have done things a lot differently, okay? So each of these things that Satan did, each of these temptations was Satan offering Jesus a shortcut to his mission. Shortcuts, again, to good desires. Shortcuts on a spiritual journey that he was supposed to take. What Satan is offering Jesus is a way to take the subway. Satan is saying to Jesus, listen, you don't have to run this whole marathon. That's that's crazy. 
run 26.2 miles? You're God. You know that no one wants to actually do that. Don't run the whole way. Take a seat on the subway and then just win, uh, then just run the last mile and you will get the victor's crown. And I won't tell anyone, I promise. And Jesus responds with truth. We have to understand that Satan tempts us in very similar ways by offering us shortcuts. Now recall that this takes place when Jesus is hungry. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, no doubt he was hungry. Fasting 40 days and 40 nights. You know what the longest I ever made it fasting was? 56 hours. That's nothing, okay? After 50 hours, I was a dead man walking. So this is miraculous. But it takes place when Jesus is hungry. And again, Jesus is fully human, okay? He's fully God, but he's also fully man. So he hasn't eaten in 40 days, and he's starving. And Satan comes to him when he's starving. Satan recognizes when we are hungry. He recognizes when we're feeling empty. He recognizes when we feel like we're missing something, when we feel like we're lacking something. And so he comes and he brings things in front of us and he says, here you go. Turn this into bread. Consume this. He sees that we have sexual desire. And so he brings something enticing in front of us. In whatever form that takes, he, he brings something enticing in front of us and he says, turn this into bread. Consume this. Feed yourself on, on this. You don't need to wait on God to feed you. He'll probably give you something gross anyway. Go ahead and eat now. Are you hungry? Eat. You're hungry? Eat again. Still hungry? Eat. Here's more rocks for you to turn into bread. Consume, consume, consume. He sees that we have a a good desire to be secure. And so he comes and he brings a mirror and he puts it in front of us. And he says, there's no need to wait on God to give you your security. You have everything you need right in this mirror. Look at it. Take a good look. Look within yourself. Use your power. Use your power within you to get whatever you need. All you need is within you. Follow the magic in your heart. He sees our desire to accomplish something big, something important. And he comes to us and he says, Do something big. Do something important, but make sure you do it your way. Make sure you get the credit. You've worked hard. You deserve it. Oh, you want to serve God in ministry? Good. Serve God in ministry. But don't take the time to be trained. Don't take the time to be mentored. Don't don't humble yourself and be discipled. Don't, Don't spend years in small positions being humbled. There's way too much work to do out there. Hit the ground running already. Don't go to seminary. Take a shortcut. Go. Go do the work of the Lord now. Because trust me, the people that are out there doing it right now, they don't know what they're doing. But you do. Go do it now. Oh, you have a desire to have a fulfilling romance. You want to get married and have a family and have a wonderful life together? Well, look here. Here's an attractive person. Why wait? Have at it. No need to examine whether or not this person is actually going to be partnering with you in a life of following after the Lord. Are you attracted to them? What are you waiting for? Take a shortcut and have the life that you want to have. Last week, we covered the truth that God grows us slowly. 
Now that's not to say that God doesn't ever do something quickly, right? Creation is a perfect example of that, okay? In six days, God quickly created everything in the universe. He works miracles throughout scripture in a bunch of different ways, and sometimes the results are instantaneous, okay? He didn't slowly raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus didn't yell at the, at the stone, Lazarus, come forth, and then look at everybody there and be like, it's going to be a few days. Uh, he's going to take a while to warm up. So go have a snack, come back on Monday, and Lazarus will be here. No, Lazarus immediately walked out. But spiritual growth is a process, and it's slow, and sometimes it's grueling and grinding and, and arduous. Being shaped by God and, and participating in his mission that he has for our lives takes a long time. And throughout that process, the enemy is always whispering, there's a faster way to do this. There's an easier way. Take the subway. And what he does is he offers us rocks. He offers us things that are not meant to be consumed. And then he convinces us that we can turn those things into bread. He says here, make bread out of bedrock and eat now. And we keep gobbling up gravel. And it brings us nothing but pain. So what do we do? When the the shortcuts are offered, when when the temptation comes, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who didn't take any shortcuts. What did Jesus do here, and how do we copy it? Well, quite simply, Jesus took the word of God, and he used it as a sword. And he used that sword to slice through every temptation. So, I'm sorry if this sounds cliche, but I'm going to tell us yet again about the importance of knowing the Bible. All right? Point number two. We cannot take shortcuts in knowing the word. We cannot take shortcuts in knowing the word. I want you to notice here that Satan didn't use the Bible in the first temptation and in the last temptation. What he did was just offer Jesus a shortcut. But in each one of those situations, Jesus uses scripture. Jesus responds to him with scripture. So Satan comes to him in that first temptation and he says, ha, here's a shortcut, have some bread. Jesus responds with scripture. And at that point, Satan says, oh, I see. A Bible reader. Uh, Okay then, let's talk about scripture. Why don't we address this from the Bible? So, in temptation number two, Satan says, you should jump because this is what the Bible says. It's interesting to me that Satan uses the Bible to tempt Jesus, as if that's going to work. But note that Satan didn't use some other book. He didn't use some other teacher. He didn't use some other philosophy. He used directly quotes from Scripture. Jesus didn't fall for that. But how often do we fall for things like that? Could it be that right now, today, there are ways in which Satan is using the Bible or Christian culture or particular church movements to lead people into sin? Could it be that right now, there are some teachers of the Bible who, with Satan's prompting, whether they realize it or not, are leading their people astray? Could it be that right now, one of the ways that Satan is most effectively leading people away from God is by using the Bible? 
and using it in such a way that people don't even know that he's twisting it. People don't even know that he's turning it. People don't even know that the words from the book are being applied in an awful way. Offering us a shortcut. Offering us a shortcut to eternal life because you can have your best life now. Every day is Friday. I'm not going to use any names. (laughs) It's it's my favorite. (laughs) Here's the thing. You better know the word. You better know the word. Because if you don't, when it is being used in the wrong way, you will not recognize it. You will fall for it because you'll say, well, it's the Bible. (laughs) Clearly this must be true. When Satan uses these verses, it's essential for us to see this. When Satan uses these verses, what he does is he rips them out of their context. He rips them out of their context. He rips them away from their original meaning. And doing so changes the meaning of these texts. And the way that Jesus responds, Jesus doesn't go, Hey, you're using that verse wrong. He could have, certainly. But what Jesus does is he then quotes other scripture back to Satan. But when Jesus quotes scripture, he quotes them in the way that the original context demands that they be used. Jesus knows how to apply scripture to his situation. Notice the first scripture that Jesus quotes, okay? The tempter comes to him and says, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So, the tempter comes, offers Jesus a shortcut. Jesus says, Ah, I know what scripture says about this. Here is the truth, enemy. And this is the the scripture that he quotes in context. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Every commandment which I command to you today, you must be careful to observe. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. How long has he been in the wilderness? Fasting. 40 days. God led you all the way in these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. What what did verse 1 say that the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness for? To be tested. To humble you and to test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers did, nor your fathers know. Your father gave you bread from heaven. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Jesus comes right out and he hits a home run. Boom, Satan offers the shortcut and Jesus goes, I'm gonna tell you exactly what the Bible says about this very situation. And he quotes a small part of the passage. But when you see the whole passage, you go, wow, Jesus really had a good understanding of context and how to apply it to his context in the way that the original context demanded. So Jesus quotes this verse to say, I trust in my Father to provide for every need here in this desert as I'm being tested and hungry. He is humbling me and testing me and I will prove faithful. So, what does the devil do? Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I see you over there, Old Testament. How about, how about I offer you something else? Are you familiar with Psalm uh, 91? Well, here, here we go. 
how about you throw yourself down from this temple? Because Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a a, a stone. Psalm 91, Jesus, just do it. But what does Satan do? Again, he only quotes part of the psalm and he rips it out of context. So why don't we take a look at Psalm 91? Why don't we see what Satan left out conveniently? Psalm 91 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So when we read this whole psalm, when we read it start to finish, what we find is that the context of Psalm 91 is obviously someone who is trusting in God in every situation, making God his refuge and strength as war comes to him. Psalm 91 is not talking about someone who is daring God to protect him as he's out there being reckless. So Jesus points this out and he responds with the truth again with another passage in Deuteronomy Jesus said to him again it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to the test so what's the context of what Jesus is saying well Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 10 through 15 So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And, to, and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy three times. From chapter 6 to chapter 8. As he addresses each one of these temptations, three times he goes to Deuteronomy and he says, let me set up the context for you. Let me quote verses from scripture that directly apply fully to my life. Jesus knows how to apply the word to his situation. Listen, this is a skill that we desperately need to develop. We desperately need to develop the skill of applying the word to our lives. This is not as simple as just knowing Bible verses. Okay, it's not even as simple as just reading regularly. This is about knowing how to take your word, take the word, and apply it directly to whatever is in front of you. My my urging for you today is do not take a shortcut in knowing the word. Do not take shortcuts in learning scripture. Do not think that retweeting a Bible verse photo fills your quota for the day, okay? Or that the one-page devotional you might read on the Bible app is going to suffice. Now, I want you to understand, those aren't bad things, okay? They just aren't enough. 
Psalm 119.97, David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Meditating is not just reading. It's considering. It's, it's mulling it over and over. It's, it's exploring the depths of it in your mind. It's, it's praying over it. It's asking for understanding. It's asking good interpretive questions. Meditating on the scriptures means allowing it to directly address your life. My friend Trevor Atwood puts it this way. You don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. So letting the Bible read you means opening yourself up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, allowing him, even asking him to challenge you with what you read. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Fixing my eyes. Again, Hebrews 12, I will fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith. He says, I'll fix my eyes on your ways. That's not an occasional visit. This is, this is a compass, okay? Think about the North Star. Before navigation systems were invented, the North Star was used to guide people when they would travel. Because it is situated directly above true north, the direction of the North Pole, the North Star, Polaris, is the only constant in the sky. So it can always be used to show where north is. If you know what you're doing, you can use it to determine latitude. It can be used in combination with other constellations to show other directions, south, east, and west. And so, travelers would have their eyes fixed on Polaris. This doesn't mean that they just stared at it the whole day as, as they were traveling without ever looking away. What it means is that they constantly checked back to it visually. They, they adjusted themselves to it wherever they were. It guided them and they stayed locked on it. And that's how we have to be with the word of God. It must be our true north that we're constantly checking ourselves against, constantly adjusting to, constantly making sure that we're still following in the right way. Again, Psalm 119, 97, it's my meditation all the day. Not once a week, not occasionally, all the time, I'm fixed on it. We need a steady diet of scripture. But too many of us take shortcuts, okay? Too many of us live on the Instagram Bible. By Instagram Bible, again, I just mean a pretty picture with a Bible verse. And we'll post it, we'll retweet it, and we smile and move on. And again, I'm not knocking doing that. Please, by all means, flood social media with scripture. If there is anything on earth that social media needs, it is more of the Bible, okay? Please do your best to fill social media with scripture in the right context, might I add, okay? Don't misuse it and quote something and make me go, why did he do that? Quote it the proper way. Fill social media with it. I'm not telling you not to do that. But what I'm saying is doing that isn't enough. Doing that is just a little snack. It's just a little snack. Imagine if you never, ever, ever ate any meals. You didn't have breakfast. You never had lunch. You never had dinner. Once or twice a day, maybe, or even less frequently than that, maybe once every few days, maybe once a week, you just ate a bite of trail mix or, or a bite of a granola bar. Imagine if that's all you ever ate. You would starve. You, you'd waste away till nothing till you died. But is it because the granola bar or the trail mix are bad? No. It's good that you even had that. It, it's just because you never had any meals. You never ate full meals. That's why you starved. The same is true with Scripture. Listen, have your bites uh, of trail mix and granola bars and your one verse post. Have that stuff. Those are good snacks, healthy snacks. But by God, if you do not have regular, full Bible meals for your soul, it is going to go hungry and die. To live a fruitful life for the Lord, you must be willing to meditate on the scriptures to fix your eyes on the ways of God, to study, to read, to learn, to listen, to ask, to invest. 
Because then when the counterfeit comes, when the shortcut is offered, you'll immediately recognize it and go, I'm running. I'm not taking the subway. Now guys, I want you to understand as well that this, does, this doesn't just happen overnight, okay? You don't, you don't have a, a wide and deep knowledge of scripture in a day or a month or, or even a year. This is, this is a long-term investment, long-term investment over the course of a lifetime. And it's also an investment that you don't make by yourself. You don't make this alone because you're called to be a part of the body and, and, and together we wrestle with the scriptures. Together we study, together we discuss, together we hone our understanding. And each one of us brings something to the table. We spend time with the Lord in the word each and every day. We allow him to mold us and to shape us and to teach us. And then we bring that knowledge into the community uh, around others to have it refined, sometimes corrected, and to be made more complete. Otherwise, we are not doing the hard work of running a marathon. Listen, if all we do is show up on Sundays or tune in on Sundays, if all we do is listen to a message, as awesome as the messages you guys hear every week, right? Thank you, okay? This is where the resounding amens should have happened. Thank you, that's right. If all we do is show up on Sundays and hear a message and nod our heads and go, all right, cool. That is pulling a Rosie Ruiz. It's it's not running the race every day. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Well, look at that. Amen, just flashing on the screen. I love it. Listen, if all we do is show up on Sundays and that's the extent of it, that's a Rosie Ruiz because it's saying, I'm not gonna run this race every day. I'm just gonna take the subway. I'm I'm gonna visit the church checkpoint every week and I'm gonna take one subway stop to the next. And then you wonder why the rest of the week you fall prey to temptation. Because Satan comes to you and gives you a shortcut to a good desire and it seems so sensible to take it. When does the mission start? After church. <laughs> it's when you leave here. It's, it's Monday through Saturday. That's when the real work is done. Guys, the, the race that we're running is hard. It's grueling, and sometimes you're going to fall. That's just reality. But what I'm asking you to do is, is to commit yourself to really, truly running the race. Because what I want is to have a church that's full of fruitful people. And that will not happen if we just take the subway. It will only happen if we know the word and we know how to apply the word. And you cannot rely on me to do that for you. We have to do this together. No one runs a marathon by themselves unless they're a psycho. We run it as a group. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray that you have encouraged and equipped us to live out the gospel every single day. God, I pray that we would commit ourselves to long-term growth commit ourselves to a long-term process of knowing the word and learning how to apply the word, memorizing scripture and, and studying it the right way, learning from it every day in the right way, so that when the counterfeit comes, when a shortcut is offered, when a temptation comes our way, we might immediately respond. Lord, your word says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let us be people who hide the word in our hearts so that when the time comes, it will come to the surface and we can say to the enemy, it is written. May we have the strength of your word. God, I pray for any person who is here or listening who does not have that kind of strength, 
who is totally unarmed in this battle because they don't know you. Lord, if there's any person here or listening or watching online right now that's never surrendered their lives to you, God, I pray that you would bring them to a place where they will see how good and beautiful you are, that your kindness would lead them to repentance, that they would see the goodness of your grace and desire it for themselves and fall on their knees and surrender, asking you to be Lord. God, I pray that you would make us a church full of fruitful people, fruitful people who are rebuilt from the ground up on the foundation of your scripture. God, as we sing this closing song, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us personally. However you desire to call us to obedience, Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to us and that we would have the courage to follow through with your direction. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll close.